I think that, and this is just from my experience of when my family found out that I had HIV, was that HIV scared the Black community so much that it made gay being worse. Because if you were gay, you were going to get AIDS and die. Period. Hi, welcome to Town Hall, a Black queer podcast, a podcast where we journey through a theme by sharing stories, music, poetry, and art of varying depth and hilarity. And today's episode is on the HIV and AIDS epidemic and the aftermath of of, of, of the um, AIDS epidemic in America. And of course, there's still an AIDS epidemic going on in um, different parts of the world and in, and in different communities, um, too. And then, you know, an epidemic in the middle, in the midst of a pandemic. So it's all, it's all, we're going to Hopefully, we're going to get a lot of information today. So my question is, when did, when did you move to New York City? Uh, in the 90s. When did you move to New York City? 2008. 2008. Oh gosh. And was was there still... So the year you got to New York City, was there like... How... What was the um the status of the... Or the, you know, aftermath or the, the midst of the AIDS epidemic while you were in New York City when you got there? Uh... Well, it was the late 90s. I think, you know, for the most part, um, the the sort of, I want to say the commercialization of the AIDS and HIV epidemic and, uh, and the, the stigma was starting to shift. It hadn't worn off and it has, probably still hasn't in a way, definitely hasn't worn off, but like, or gone away, but like the stigma, like the the urgency of AIDS and HIV, um, mm-hmm. the seeming urgency, like generally, was starting to wane a bit. Where people were starting to see, understand that you can live with a with HIV, um, and there are certainly people who uh, you know have had been diagnosed with AIDS and probably become really, really. Uh, physically affected but made it through and so it wasn't just an automatic death sentence anymore i think that's what started to sink in Mm -hmm. in the late 90s um and the the commercialization of the notion of aids and hiv was like in full effect i think in the early 80s you, we weren't seeing, you know, characters written into stories who had AIDS or HIV. You certainly, you certainly didn't see people written in who had HIV. It was like, so here's a gay character. We have, they have AIDS. They're gonna die. Um, I remember so famously Ryan Phillippe, uh, his first first character that I saw him portray, which was probably his biggest character, uh, biggest role at the time, was I can't remember his name, but he was on One Life to Live. Um, and he, or maybe it was General Hospital. I think it was One Life to Live because that was the only soap opera I watched. Um, and he, he played a gay character. I uh, can't remember the character's name, but the character, obviously he was young, uh, had AIDS. And he was the gay character with AIDS who would only come on to the TV once a year. Guess what year, what day it was? World AIDS Day. And that was the gay character. Oh, that was the gay representation. Is. And he would just come on and remind people that... I've AIDS. My life is not good. I gotta go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't even remember. I gotta run, y'all. AIDS, AIDS still full of AIDS. Gotta yeah. run. 
Thank you so much yes, for having me. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see you, you next year. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, and so that was the only purpose that he, that, that was my impression. He may have had some other appearances on the show, but that's, it was like, so. And not to, not to minimize Mr. Philippi's role in the show, but we're just, perhaps just going from her own That's my recollection. And it was, it was, but it was clear that it was tokenizing is my point. And when it's tokenizing, it's like, the, you're not there for your, the benefit of you or the, the AIDS and HIV community or the LGBTQ community. You're there for everyone else's comfort just to say, okay, we saw one and we move it on. And they make money, you know, directly or indirectly off of that, like the TV yeah. show. And so that was when I started to be like, okay, they understand that we're here. They understand that people who have AIDS and HIV are there. And and that the queer community is here and they're just going to like use us. They figured out how they can use us in a way that's comfortable and distant enough. And clearly maybe once a year on World AIDS Day, it was as comfortable as they could get talking about these subject matters. Like they weren't going to make it like the Mother's Day episode. Um, and so that's yeah. what I started to and see there, across you know, the board. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of plays about uh, HIV and AIDS. There's obviously, the, I think probably the most famous one is Rent. Everyone knows Rent, and then you mm -hmm. also have uh, Angels in America, The Age Show, um, The Normal Heart, uh, the movie uh, Philadelphia. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, from my perspective, not living in New York City until 2008, and by the time I got to, by the time I got to, to New York City in 2008, it was quite uh, the phrase, it's not a death sentence, uh, I, I feel has become quite synonymous with specifically HIV and AIDS. In my mind, when someone says it's not a death sentence, that is literally exactly what they're talking about. Um, and then, of course, there's also, um, you know, documentaries. And, and and then also, I remember when I first moved to New York City, there's this queen named Stella Doro. Oh, mm -hmm. And Stella Doro was working with, on, um, on a uh, vaccine. On an HIV AIDS vaccine, it was called Project Achieve. Uh, yeah, vaccine. No, I, no, no, no. It's okay. I, I actually, Achieve. I actually worked for them. Um, well, you, she you was the queen of vaccine. As, as the queen as the vaccine. Yeah, she was right? the queen of vaccine. She was the the inaugural queen, queen of vaccine. vaccine. And um, it was uh, it was an event called Project. Uh, it was it was for a, a um, an initiative, a community initiative, a community health initiative called Project Achieve, which were the goal was to connect people in the community, mostly through at gay bars and events, drag shows, uh, with uh, AIDS and HIV services and education, primarily uh, HIV testing and volunteers for the HIV Vaccine Trials Network, which was a network in the, in the United States, uh, a program which was similar to like sort of the pilot program uh, behind the PrEP, which, uh, you know, got participants involved in various uh, clinical trials to, to try to test uh, vaccines for for uh, the HIV vaccine trials network, obviously. Um, PrEP, they were testing PrEP. Uh, and so they would get people involved in these clinical trials. Uh, people would go, they would get tested, they would, uh, you know, they would monitor their health. Uh, and they would find out about it mostly from Stella Doro. Um, and then later on, when she sort of retired as the queen of vaccine, I became the queen of vaccine with Project Achieve. And it was together with Project Achieve and Columbia University were the, uh, the groups that were um, partnering in, the, in New York. And the HIV Vaccine Trials Network's Ooh. job was to get, uh, to get different HIV vaccines that were um, moving into the next stage of uh, human trials and 
find participants around the country uh, to participate in these in these programs. And we tried all different types of vaccines. Uh, I think the one that was most prob- promising was one that was a BNAB vaccine, which I think kind of similarly works to uh, I, I'm not a scientist, <laughs> um, b- but I think it works similarly to how the most successful um, women in STEM, <laughs> women in LAO, STEM. Um, uh, uh, COVID vaccine works. It, to my recollection, it would take a piece of a copy of the uh, vac- of the uh, AIDS virus. It wasn't actually people. I think a lot of times when we think of vaccines, one of the fears is that you're just injecting the virus or the disease right into me to see how I do. And that's not the, that's not necessary. That's, that certainly is um, how some vaccines work, but. Uh, that's not how vaccines work. That, that's, that's not how vaccines work. Yeah. Well, but, uh, yeah, we're not, they don't inject you with AIDS um, <laughs> and see how you do. We already know, just, we already know I'm what happens. Sure, I'm pretty sure that's not how any vaccines work. I'm pretty sure that's not how any I don't think any vaccines well, are injecting there you are with some exposure. The there are some types of vaccines that are exposure that like rely on exposure to to get your body's uh, natural um, kick. So started. is that how some vaccines work? Uh, what do you mean? I was say when I thought when I understood, I was looking up a lot about that. We we're all uh, experts on vaccines and <laughs> because of the the war going on with vaccines. Um. But I remember looking up something. And I was like, "Oh, again, we are not scientists. We're, we're not. We're, we're not women in STEM." Um, but what I understand, uh, the vaccines do no vaccines inject the actual. There is exposure therapy, but that's not what a vaccine is. Vaccines do not inject. They what develop a vaccine. Well, I, I don't want to talk generally about vaccines in general. I'm going to talk about the one that we were trying. The one that was the most successful that we were trying was called a BNAB uh, vaccine, basically, and it basically gave a portion of a copy of sort of like the same the same structural code of the HIV virus, but it wasn't HIV. Uh, that was injected into that that people would receive, um, and that was something that I think they had to go. There was a, a series of times they had to go, but anyway, um, it, this was a, a, one of the trials. It was it was very successful. It, it, it was the most promising. I can't say it was successful. It was the most promising, um, and they've since then. That was like more than ten years ago that I was involved in it. It was definitely ten year about ten years ago or more, um, and there's obviously not a marketable HIV vaccine to date, but there are instances where people, you know, and we'll hear more from our guests, of, of course, uh, about this. There are instances where yeah. people have, um, you know, in in very um, specific and sort of anecdotal instances been able to uh, become HIV free, um, which is obviously a great thing, but we have some, we have some, we still have some great tools. But anyway, that was a, a, a it felt really good to be able to connect the community with uh, the HIV vaccine trials network. And I worked with them for, for 10 years um, and it was a great thing. But anyway, so that's that, but you, I digress. I you were talking about Celador. We are not, we, we are not um, scientists. I will read this one thing real quick and I will move on from this. Live vaccines are derived from wild viruses or bacteria. The, the, these wild viruses or bacteria are, are weakened in a laboratory, usually by repeated culturing. For example, the measles virus uses a vaccine today that was isolated from a child with measles 
1954. Yeah, they essentially take um, so the the antibodies that already exist, and at least this is how BNABs work: is that they they um, they take a certain type of antibody, and that's what you are exposed to. So the antibody already has. It basically is like it's like th- this is like the most crude way to explain it. It's almost like a um, a really good eyewitness <laughs> that like remembers everything about the perpetrator and knows how they look, how they smell, how they walk, how they act, even how they look when they're in disguise. And you bring that eyewitness into your situation and the rest of your body doesn't know about the eyewitness and how sneaky the eyewitness is and the fact that eyewitness can kind of change and do all kinds of stuff. So, but this, I'm uh, not the, the virus, not the eyewitness, the perpetrator can like change and do all this stuff. So the eyewitness is in there and be like, there it is right there. And then they teach that to all the rest of the other folks. And then everybody's suddenly a good eyewitness. That's like the worst way to explain that. But <laughs> it actually wasn't, I mean, I mean, I understood what you were saying. So maybe, maybe it wasn't a, eyewitness. a, a, a terrible way to Anyway. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, and, and, you know, New York City is obviously, I think that... The best enough, place to live. There you go. End of people, show. <laughs> New York City is a lovely place. I think, oddly enough, New York City, there are two places you think about when you, you think, think about AIDS? the ravages of... Um, when we think about the, the ravages of the HIV and AIDS epidemic, I think people think about New York City. And people also just untenuously think about the continent the entire continent of Africa. And I think that's probably because HIV and AIDS have had significant impacts on both these geographic locations. And I and I think it's really interesting. I, I've never really done the full unpacking of that because I think because there's a lot of art and documentaries and pictures and depictions and stories about how HIV and AIDS have affected mm-hmm. these areas. Mm-hmm. And obviously these areas have a lot going on outside of their impact. You know, people are not just the sum of what's happened to them. They're also the sum of things they've created, what they make, what they do, not just what's happened to mm-hmm. them. Obviously. Yeah. Well, when I, I think it might be slightly like, I don't want to say generational cause you and I are in the same generation, but um, you know, in a slightly different age bracket, just barely. But um, you know, for me, when I think of the two places that are like, come top of mind with AIDS and HIV are definitely, especially AIDS are San Francisco slash it's really Oakland um, and, and New York and New York, Oakland, because um, the North Pacific Northwest is where the earliest cases of uh, um, AIDS were reported initially on a larger scale. Um, San Francisco being obviously a very large, openly gay and LGBT uh, population uh, in the 70s and 80s. And then New York also having that uh, distinction. Uh, but the the efforts that were sort of what was happening out of um, main, in mainstream media in terms of the reporting of AIDS, and, well, AIDS at the time, uh, information was coming out of patients and people in San Francisco and seeing that this gay cancer was popping up all over the place. But like there was a sort of a um, grew a large number in in the city of San Francisco. Uh, and I, I digress just a second. Um, folks should really watch a, a wonderful documentary called um, Endgame AIDS in Black America, which talks about, which is really interesting, talks about the dichotomy between Black populations and white populations, both gay, San Francisco versus uh, Oakland, which is, you know, 
historically and predominantly, uh, you know, has a large black population. Um, and folks who would flock to cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, people would flock to cities like that, black folks included. And then, you know, the gay one, gay people, gay folks of color and gay people in general would flock to San Francisco, people who are, who had a, um, you know, a higher earning potential at the time were able to afford to live in San Francisco, which is a more uh, expensive place to live. And then Oakland is sort of the outside, outside of the closest you could get if you were poor, essentially. I, I don't mean to paraphrase, but, um, or I don't mean to. Oakland's in the East Bay, yeah. yeah. And so, th- uh, what would happen is people should watch AIDS in Black America, Endgame, AIDS in Black America. It's just really, really, really detailed and a um, captivating account of the early stories of AIDS in Black communities, which was not really documented and hasn't been talked about much in mainstream. We hear about the the uh, the some of the earliest patients and and AIDS patients. Uh, being gay folks, but the people that are chronicled a lot of times in terms of documentaries and stories and things that people say, it's white folks. And they're not really talking about the black experience when it comes to AIDS and HIV Um, in the the early days. And what was ended up up happening was to be really short about in a nutshell, like like, um, there were lots of gay black men in Oakland who would go into San Francisco to socialize and have sex, sex, sexual encounters. And that's how this was um, initially breaking into, I want to say that's at least that's in the documentary, how they're saying this really started to get into spread really quickly in the black community because they didn't have the same access to uh, the sort of healthcare, even if nobody had great healthcare when it came to AIDS and HIV uh, prevention, detection and protection. Uh, But, but these folks Mm -hmm. were an, impacted community that was not really protected and certainly not really um uh wasn't really revered in the same way structurally system system systematically uh, or systemically like some of the white populations were in san francisco even the ones with aids and hiv and the, and the gay folks in san francisco were at the time late 70s early 80s were still being discriminated against and obviously people with aids it was called gay cancer and then people once we realized what aids could do people were like discriminated against regardless of their color but it impacted people in black communities uh and black folks differently uh than it did white folks. I mean, that's just, you know, because of all the other factors around their access to healthcare, socioeconomic status, their connection to their family, whether or whether or not they were out of the closet or not, which we saw a lot of uh, stigma and shame, um, you know, with for everyone around being gay, let alone having AIDS or HIV. Um, And and in New York, the ACT UP uh, was, was really, really, really instrumental in helping spread the word and alert people to connecting AIDS to the health system and medication and, uh, you know, AZT and and sort of all these notions that a lot of people would think about in the mid and early 90s um, about AIDS and HIV was coming out of New York because we were able to see these activists act up, which is a group of activists that would stage demonstrations and sit-ins and putting a condom over uh, Congress people's houses, like a huge condom, like the size of a house over their, their mm-hmm. house um, to draw attention to the fact that these politicians were not diverting, even giving any money to AIDS and HIV medication, um, life-saving drugs. And people were having to do um, really, really, the gay people in the community were really having to try 
to find really unorthodox ways to get access to, the, to this medication that was happening in other countries and things like that. Uh, and that story, story was sort of co-opted in the um, movie Dallas Buyers Club, which is about a straight white guy. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I, I'm rambling, but anyway, watch Endgame, AIDS in Black America. New York City. Thank you for that. Africa. I'm bringing you back to your point. (laughs) Um, And with that in mind, uh, let's 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 go ahead and um, bring up our um, our first guest. Who do we have up first? Oh my gosh! I'm really excited to introduce our very first guest, Glenn Hill, uh, who is a 71 year old fabulous and uh, person uh, who has spent the last 38 years HIV positive. Uh, and he is a loving father and grandfather uh, who happens to be sober for 20 plus years and fully retired. Yes, fully retired in America. What does that mean? I, I need to, hear, I'm hopeful that we'll hear what fully retired means because God, labor, that's another Maybe we'll <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of people I know are retired are still working. Um, anyway, he is super grateful to be uh, both of service of service both to uh, HIV and sober communities. And so, uh, with that being said, let's welcome Glenn Hill. Okay, my name is Glenn Hill, and I am seventy-one years old. I was born in Los Angeles. Uh, and I pretty much have grown up in L.A. I, um, I have one daughter. I have a grandchild. I, have, <laughs> I don't remember when I was in as far as coming out. I don't have a, an official coming out gay story. I was never in. I uh, just was who I was. And I was blessed to have a family that didn't, um, they, were pretty, they accepted me without a lot of drama behind it. My daughter is 38. Uh, I was 37, I believe, when I got married. Uh, And um, I met this beautiful woman. Uh, I was never trying to be straight or anything like that. Uh, At that time, I was a flight attendant uh, for one of the major carriers. And uh, I saw this beautiful black woman sitting. uh, I was coming from London. And uh, she she was the only, only one, only sister on the airplane. And so she was coming to L.A. to uh, for the first time, and we were talking, and she was asking about where the black folks were. And so I decided, I said, you know, this is my city. Why don't I pick you up and take you and show you the city, and or show you at least uh, black L.A. because she wouldn't. She was staying at the Century Plaza, and I knew she would not see black L.A. from there. And so uh, that was kind of like it wasn't. It was. Was I guess you say is official? It was a date, if you will, a date to go see L.A. It wasn't nothing, anything else. And then we just we just struck it up. And at that time, I was going back and forth to London, and and so we began to uh, go out and and see. And when she, uh, I guess you can say, I had this transatlantic relationship, and uh, and finally we one day. Oh, oh, the funny thing is that uh, she never she never knew I was gay. And she had never she she didn't have any gay people in her life at that time, and so uh, so we were out uh, we were out out and about L.A. and all of a sudden I realized that you know it's time like let's go to a club, and I realized that I didn't know any straight clubs, so I took her to 
uh, the catch one in LA. And, uh, and she thought, she said, well, Jesus, the people here are so liberal because, you know, same-sex dancing and all that kind of stuff. But she hadn't really connected the dot with me yet. And uh, so it was when somebody had asked me to dance, and she said she kind of looked, and then she kind of thought. But anyway, that was our, our the introduction to uh, uh, me and, and her, and and how we kind of came about. And uh, it just like I said, it was just it just it just uh, grew, or as you say, organically. Uh, and I met her family, and I never had to pretend that I was anything other than who I am. And then we had this moment when she said to me, she said, Glenn, I think I can handle you being gay. Uh, as long as there's not another woman, I think we're gonna be okay. And I said, well, okay. So so here we are today. I said to her, I, I, we had joking that I said to her, guess what, there's never been another woman. <laughs> so, and it had to be, never been another woman. And, uh, but I'm a gay man. And um, towards the end of the marriage, uh, I was started to lean more and more uh, towards my uh, uh, towards being gay, and I, I never had to stop anything. Uh, but uh, with the onset of of the age, that kind of pushed everything, where I had to make choices, and I found out. About two weeks before my daughter was born, that I was HIV positive. And so there was this moment when I uh, had to have my daughter tested as well as, um, you know, so so it, during that period, the results were about three weeks or better, longer to find it. And during that period, I had to really look at what was right. She was not going to go out on me. And I uh, thank God neither are, are positive. And so once I got that news, uh, I had to make a decision. I had to let her out of a marriage that was starting to fall apart. And, and uh, like I said, she would not go out on me, but I continued to, um, uh, I continued my relationship with men and the likelihood of me infecting her was you know increasing i couldn't do that so um i agreed to a divorce i was not exactly shocked that i was positive i was kind of numb you know i just kind of rolled with it um and it was like in 86 um and at that time the only thing available was azt and i kind of went by uh, I saw my doctor. My doctor recommended, but but I also went by what I felt was uh, I knew my own health. I mean, I had I was never a sickly person, and I saw what AZT was starting to do to um, a lot of my friends. They would get it and they would die, and so I I said to my I just had this thing. I just said, you know what? I've not been sickly. I want this shit to work if it's to work, and I didn't want to take it too soon. I felt if I took it too soon and something comes, you know the uh, the effectiveness would not be as strong. So I just said, uh, I, 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 I'm not going to take anything. And my doctor was saying, he said, okay, if that's what you want. And so I was never, it was never, uh, uh, I was never forced or made to feel anything. It's just, it was a decision that uh, uh, was respected, my decision. And 
And uh, I am glad today, obviously, that uh, I made that decision for myself. My friends, I had, uh, uh, like I, my friends of history, uh, like I said, I, I had, I knew in high school that I was gay and I started to build relationships as early as that. So my friends of history uh, all start, they all tested positive and they started dying. And so I went through what we call the dark period. I remember when they had no name. I remember when uh, we were afraid to even walk into a room. We had no idea of how the thing was being transmitted. And it was it was probably one of the darkest periods in my life. Um, but yet, you know, life was still going on. And, um, the, you know, uh, say there were roughly about 10 guys that I ran with. Of the 10, all of them died but one over a period of time. Um, I had figured that I was at peace with, that this could, I could die, you know, that, that, you know, that, like, well, we're all going to die, but I was, I was okay with knowing that um, there was a possibility that I could die from this. And I continued to, um, to, to, to just get on with life. Needless to say, I use artificial coping uh, things that, that to, to help me cope through it. Uh, I had gone through, through so many funerals that I actually had to stop going. Uh, I Gay Pride um, was an event that I stopped going to because it was you, year after year you run into people and they say, did you know such and such? Oh, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. So, I, so those events bec uh, became very dark for me. And then um, I just caused, you know, I started, I, I found relief in, in drugs and alcohol. And in my life, really spiraled down and um I, I i was resolved that this is how it's going to be my friends of history were, were all brothers okay so my 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 as you can say my my uh posse that would be a word to use today they were all brothers now my sex base was my sex base was different uh and those relationships were were, were sexual but not quite as close as my friends and so all around me, death was all around. It did not discriminate. Um, and so, uh, you know, as I just, I, I, I just kept going, you know, I just kept going. I have an idea of who it was because uh, I looked back at who I was uh, involved with and there was one that I mean, I, I I don't know for a fact, so uh, but there was one telltale sign. I didn't know I was looking at Kaposi's when I saw it, but he had these purple marks on him, and um, he is now he 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 actually died of AIDS. Uh, so I would say now I don't want to say it was him because I was very sexually active, so I don't know who it was, and it would be wrong for me to say it was him. But I would say, given the 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 the, uh, the lesions on his face, and he, he wasn't he didn't have the he wasn't a sickly looking person. He just had these these purple lesions on. Uh, so I would kind of say that there is a a ninety percent chance that I got it from him. How I I, I decided, <laughs> I said I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going when friends died, I partied. 
I said, I'm going to party a little bit harder. And I just kept, I, 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 I won't say I was not in reality, but I just kept on, I'm, 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 you know, I was young and um, we just adapted, you know what I'm saying? We just adapted. Um, I continued to have sex. It wasn't, no, even though, um, even though they were uh, advocating for safer sex, um, I, that was not my, that's not what I, I, I didn't do. I, I was, I just didn't do it. Now I I did once um I I my sex partners I always let them know in advance that I was positive uh, and I for the most part would would really only have sex if I knew with guys that were positive you know um, I, I I felt felt more comfortable with that they had accepted the fact that I was positive once once I was initially diagnosed. It was how do I live with that information, and so I decided that, like I said, you know, me and my coping mechanism, my my coping were, were drugs. So I, I definitely uh, I uh, used a lot of drugs. Uh, not saying oh I'm going to use this to escape, but if you look back, I look back at my history. I look back at what I was doing. Uh, it was definitely uh, I, I. It was probably the. Uh, the beginning uh, of my, uh, the beginning of the end, if you will, uh, of me using. Um, and I tested positive for, see, I say the first six years, I tested positive. And then from six years to current present, I went undetectable without medication. I've never been on medication. I I am what you call that they used to call it back then an elite suppressor. Uh, I am well sought after because uh, number one, not my age, and and the length of time that I was I've been positive. So um, I'm one of those guys who was positive, and having never taken any kind of medication, I am now undetectable and have been detect undetectable for at least thirty years. I have a very strong immune system. Um, I think that's also another reason, like I said, we were talking about um, the AZZ and AZT and what I, uh, not taking stuff. I, I went by my, I've never been a sickly person. So, uh, and even to this day, I don't know why it is that uh, I, you know, the, the uh, cause the studies that I'm involved in, they don't tell me the results of those studies, but um, but they do. They have sought me out, you know, from from uh, Boston to UCLA. Uh, several uh, institutions have, have have sought me out. They take they take a lot of blood, okay, and they take a they they take a lot, and then they do this thing where they. Uh, like in Boston, they um, uh, they they take the blood they take the blood in, take the blood out and they I guess you can rinse it and they uh, this machine dice, uh, dissects it into all these little whatever and they get what they want and then they put the blood back in. I mean it, you know it's kind of like a, a loop you know uh, and 
it takes about it takes a few hours to do it. They fly me in for that, and then they also test my uh, my nervous system. It, uh, they 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 do a a a lot of oh I've had the, what do you call it a uh, uh, where they put you in a little tube thing in, in um, MRI where they yeah MRI now ooh. <laughs> now you talk about feel like you're in a coffin that brother that, and you gotta stand you gotta be perfectly still I hate that but anyway I, I I've had several of those and. Um, and like I said, they, they, uh, uh, then the, 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 the psychological c- component, they, they do that too. Um, yeah, they, 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 when I go in, they do, a, a, a body of, of, of tests. And what I've done is that in, in many ways, it's my way of taking part in this. It's my way of giving back to my giving to my community, especially those who have died and were able to. And I, like I said, I don't know what they find or not find in my my thing. But one thing I do know that I have an opportunity to be of maximum service to my my community, to my gay brothers and sisters who uh, who maybe might be able to be helped by these tests that I'm taking. So I would feel that. If I didn't participate, it's being selfish. God, my my God, has been very good to me, and this is my way of, of saying thank you. So I go and I, when when they call me and tell me that they want me to be, if I want to still continue to be a part of these studies, uh, I say yes. You know, as long as they want me, I'm I'm, I'm good. I, uh, so I've, I'm involved at least once a year in in, uh, uh, in one 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 or two of these studies every year, um, and like I said, it's uh, they fly me in. You know, if it's out of, out of California, they'll fly me in, put me in a hotel, feed me, and all that stuff. And they and they they give you a little stipend. You know, it, it's not the money. <laughs> you know, no, it's the opportunity to help. Being sexual is, is a natural, normal thing. Um, being aware and, and, and taking care of oneself shows that you care. And so uh, when you're young, yeah, I mean, honey, I, was, I, I had a very active sex life. And I still do now at 71, by the way. <laughs> Ain't no shame in my game. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> But what I what I do like what well, like anything, uh, information allows you to make better choices. Denial does nothing but lead to death. Okay, pretending that you don't know what you I mean that's not that's not that's not a solution. Like I said, when when I was uh, when they asked me, or like when I was diagnosed. I didn't know very much, but I knew this one thing is that I needed the information. I needed to know so that I can move about this world and know what, you know, know what's going on. I, I don't want to pretend that I, that there's not this epidemic out there that, that could kill. And I didn't want to knowingly infect someone. See, and so uh, what I suggest to the young people 
is don't be in denial. Whatever's out there, take it. It's okay. And work with your doctor. You know, uh, and go, uh, if you're sexually active, go, go as often as you need to have blood work. If you are busy and you have unprotected sex, I, see, I know they use the word like safe sex. No, it's safer sex. There's only one thing that is safe and that is abstinence. Everything else is safer, okay? Because there's always a small percentage that, is, you know, you could, you could get the condom with a little hole in it, <laughs> okay? Yeah, right. so, and, and, and sex is not for children. Sex is for adults. And what I mean by that is that if you're going to engage in sex, you have to take, on, take responsibility. And you take and you own whatever happened, okay? If you... You you can't pretend that you don't know. If you don't, if you are uncomfortable, then keep your pants zipped up or your 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 you know keep keep your legs closed, okay? Because I don't care how old you are. Once you engage, you are saying I'm an adult, and that means that I take responsibility for my actions, be it right or wrong. All right. And if you aren't willing to do that, then maybe it's not the time for you to be physically engaged. If you're not using protection, then you definitely are opening the door for whatever comes your way. You can't, I mean, there are other things out there besides HIV. I mean, really, I mean, you know, you have gonorrhea, syphilis, all these things are out there that can can be uh, uh, prevented, if you will, by by wearing a condom. But if you choose not to, then you have to own that responsibility. You know, you don't go to the to the ball and expect somebody else to have it for you. You bring your own shit, okay? You make sure that if you want to have sex with with if 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 having protected sex is 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 what you really want, then you show up with your own condom, okay? You take care of yourself, and. If a person that you are with doesn't want what you want, then it's okay to say, you know what, this is not for me. Okay, this is not for me. And you have a good day. Because there are plenty of people out there who will respect your boundaries. Okay? Don't be don't be coerced into something that you're not ready for. And then you play the victim afterwards. No, it's a little late. Now, it, only in cases of rape, or if you kidnap and you're take, taken against your will, you always have a choice. Okay? You can't say you didn't have... No. You chose to let that person... Uh, 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 let them trump you. Okay? Trump your, 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 what works for you. It ain't that damn hot. You're hotter. And, 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 and the thing is, I've always said... Look, when I give someone to, to, when I give myself to someone, I'm giving them a very precious gift. The most precious gift I can give anyone is myself. Not my bank account, not my card, not my, it's me. And so be careful who you give your gift to because everyone is not going to appreciate the gift. Okay? And if you abuse my gift, meaning like you lied to me and you do all these things, then you know what? I take my gift back. Mm-mm. I'm not going to waste my gift on someone who cannot appreciate it. 
But see, I had to learn to appreciate that my own self. This is where my recovery comes in. I've been 20 years sober. And I didn't really look at me or any of my sexual practice or anything until, really, until I got sober. I had to learn to value me. I mean, I had to learn to put boundaries. I had to learn how to say no and go, it was okay. See, once again, everyone is not going to respect me. Why should I, why should I think you would respect me when I don't respect my own self? Okay? When I am allowing myself to, to uh, uh, live in, in, in a false reality and, and do things that compromise a quality of life. And now I, I look at my body as my temple. This is my temple. This is not brick and mortar. This is my temple. This is, this is where that higher power, the God of my understanding dwells within this temple. And when I'm putting things in my body that doesn't support it, then I'm polluting the very thing that has given me life. Well, first of all, uh, I'm not gay daddy. I'm daddy who happens to be gay, who happens to be positive, who happens to be African-American, all of these things. But who I am, I, I'm daddy. And then what trumps all that is that I'm a human being. Okay. And so I brought my daughter up to not, I've never hid who I am. I was never ashamed. I never, I, I never said that, um, you know, keep a secret. I never, I never, I never said, oh, you can't say. I just, I, I educated my daughter on when she asked certain things, then I gave her an answer. I didn't give her a long story, but I answered the question she asked. Because I was honest and, and, and truthful with my ex-wife, it allowed us to transition to where we are today. We are soulmates. I love her today more than I did when I actually said, when we said I do, and she's married and and, and 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 everyone knows we all her husband her current her husband we all respect each other. He had never tried to be daddy to my daughter. He was he was my my ex wife's uh, husband, and so I if I taught my daughter if I were to teach my daughter to be shamed, then I you know no I told her yeah, she loves her gay dad. In fact, she said something. When I, she was about 16, and I'm single. And so I, I was single, then I'm still single. And she said, she said, Daddy, do you want me to help you find your boyfriend? Now, does she need to help me? No. But the fact that the reason why she said that she wants me, she wants me to have joy and love in my life. And she said, <laughs> her thing is, do you want, and no, I don't need her to help me find me a boyfriend. But the fact is that she respects and loves me so much that I, I mean, I, I can't say enough about, about her. And I said, as far as the people that are, are most my family and, and, and all, it's because I've been honest. Because I said, if you don't, if you're going to have a problem with, with me being gay or even HIV, I need to know that now. Okay, because I can love you from all the way across the globe. I don't need to have you in my life. But I still love you. And I respect the fact that you can't deal with stuff. But you can't be in my inner circle. Or, or what if I get sick and I need you? And then you're going to tell me all this bullshit? No. 
So I have been, I'm very fortunate that not only my daughter, but my entire family is supportive. And they celebrate not only the, my gayness, but my HIV. They, I've never hit that stuff. And nor did they feel uh, if they touched this or, or they had, no, we never did that. I was never made to feel less than. Our, our young people are very educated. Go on the internet. We have, I mean, everything is so readily available and accessible. And most importantly, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I have concern. Okay? Now, don't live in fear. Fear means that that which you cannot control, you fear. If you, if you take your medication, and say you are positive, you test, but it's not a death sentence. That's one reason why I've agreed to this, 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 this project. Is that I need to let people know that it is not. A, 38 years, I've been positive. And I, so my thing is, don't let people, uh, seek your own information. Seek, your, seek the truth. The truth is out there. Libraries, uh, their clergies, churches, uh, the gay and lesbian center—it's everywhere. So if you don't want to know the truth, it's because you don't want to know. But hold your head—if you are—if you do test positive, hold your head up with dignity. It's okay. It's just information you need to know. No, and Glenn is um, is is uh, obviously sure that that he's undetectable, which is another uh, I would say uh, HIV/AIDS buzzword that you, that you hear associated with um, with HIV and AIDS uh, to the point where it's even on a grinder. You know, on, on undetectable is a is, is something you can put it's in your grinder. But it's profile. also an actual status. It's a health status. It's a signifier for health no, status no, for sure. Of course, it is. Yeah. Yes. I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying it's not a status. What I'm saying is it is a word that has made it into the mainstream that people are like, oh, yeah, we all know. And it's even made it into the dating apps. Um, and, you know, when when you are undetectable, um, when you when you have HIV and AIDS, but you're undetectable, essentially, and I don't know the numbers, but it's a, it is a, a monochrome of a chance, like 99.9% chance that you will not uh, those it's are, it's, it's higher than that. It's not. It's, it's definitely higher than that. You cannot uh, pass, spread, or uh, HIV. Not AIDS. AIDS is a, is a is a, yeah, a disease. Yeah. Like you know that happens to your body when you have HIV. Yeah, it's, it's, it's when they, yeah. it's when um, and so, yeah. but when you're undetectable, you uh, on on your when you're properly monitoring your health your viral load and um, taking your meds, which is how people get to undetectable, uh, you, it's, yeah. it's not possible. It has not happened where people, where people have spread, uh, you know, um, the HIV virus to someone else through sexual contact. Uh, and so, which I'm really, I'm really intrigued by that and how it's like, because uh, by, by the time I got to New York City, undetectable was like already like a word that we were that we were hearing. I don't know if it, how it mainstream it, it is. I feel I'm like thinking. in the queer community, it's definitely in the in the queer community that has an obvious connection to uh, AIDS and HIV. Whether you know somebody who's HIV positive or not, but or just because of the stigma alone and people associating, because there's lots of people who probably don't even know somebody didn't know whether didn't know someone who was open about talking about their HIV status, but 
they are queer yeah. in the community. And then when, especially if they're an adult, like over 20 or 30, probably have encountered maybe over 30 encountered someone who maybe like discriminated against them or thought that they could be H more likely to have HIV because they were gay. And so like queer people definitely carry that burden. Um, or at least I don't want to call it a burden. Queer people have definitely, um, have carry the stigma, carry the stigma and uh, the effect of the stigma. stigma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There we go. Yeah. So, so I'm really intrigued by how, uh, how that term is made it throughout, especially, oh, I mean, again, speaking from, from the perspective of a New Yorker, how that term was Boston. really, uh, like we, I do live in Los Angeles right now. I'm a citizen of the world. I'm in Long Island right now Ooh. in this palatial state. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, we, a lot of us in the New York city queer scene and the hookup scene, um, know what that word means. And I think that maybe a lot of times too, it's interesting how, um, the public concern for HIV and AIDS has, uh, shifts depending on who in the public eye has been afflicted with HIV and AIDS. So like when it's just a bunch of unnamed gays in New York city is one thing, but when it's rock Hudson, when it's magic Johnson, when it's easy E, you know, all of a sudden the, the, it, 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 it seems to get more attention from different people. And I, I just find that interesting. I also don't have any studies on who's paying attention to HIV and its effects on different communities and when different um, demographics become more aware or less aware of it. But I have to imagine that a lot of straight people started, uh, their ears perked up when they found out that Magic Johnson was diagnosed with HIV. For sure. They definitely did. I think part of it is because, you know, without being able to put a, a face to it, especially in the earlier years, most of the people who, who had HIV, they had HIV for a short time, which eventually moved to AIDS because there weren't any therapies or medications that were able to keep people as healthy as possible and keep them from dying, first of all, very early on. And when those drugs were invented or, or created, when those therapies were created uh, and available in the world... Um, via and viable, uh, they people couldn't access them because our and the that's the big the big sort of the linchpin is that they people couldn't access these therapies that were being at, at, a lot of them were were sort of what we would call experimental and our government whether local city state or federal was not moving to give people access to what they were calling experimental therapies at the time, even though those are the only things that were showing promising signs of keeping people alive. And in order for that to have happened for the, the government to be able to like green light, essentially these experimental therapies and access to them are, it would have to maybe work from the top down, but it certainly in, um, you know, the Department of Health and, and in, in the United States, our president would have had to acknowledge it and Congress would have had to move to, to allow people to have access to these things and give people access to these things. And Congress did not do that. Our president, who was Reagan at the time, did not do that until his best friend, apparently, uh, reportedly his best friend, um, Rock Hudson, died. And we discovered later that it was of AIDS uh, that he died. And then that was the first time that President um, uh, uh, Reagan even mentioned the word HIV publicly um, on camera or anything like that. And so that was one thing. And then the other thing is, I think that I think the, the biggest thing that brought an awareness of, I think, honestly, Rock Hudson for a lot of the country was what told people what was act what AIDS actually was. And they and and they like, oh, AIDS is a disease that you can get that that 
lots of people have um, and lots of gay people have. And, oh, Rock Hudson must have been gay. Like, that's all the, I think that's as far as people's minds went with Rock Hudson. But it was mm-hmm. really the story of Ryan White that brought that really personified the face of HIV because Rock Hudson was secretive or quiet about it until he died. And then so we didn't get a chance to see someone walking and talking who was living at the time with either AIDS or HIV until Ryan White, who was a young boy who uh, reportedly had con- contracted um, a- HIV and then AIDS through a blood transfusion. And he was a young, he was, you know, 10, I don't know how old he was. Um, and Michael Jackson was like, you know, everybody would wanted to like take care of Ryan White and make give him comfort and joy in his and what would have been a death sentence and what ultimately ended up being a death sentence. Um, and so suddenly he was with all this movie stars. Michael Jackson was coming around there, <laughs> you know, like everybody was like, you know, Ryan White, Ryan White, and so that was the first person who was sort of positioned in a sympathetic view uh when it came to aids uh that i can remember and then second after ryan white was uh next person we heard about was was magic johnson and that was the most high profile person at the time um who that we had heard about besides arthur ash who around the same time um you know uh was a, as a tennis legend obviously and it was also black um and so that's when it started to become more humanized which is what we needed I agree. Um, we should uh, keep. We, we should keep, keep it going, y'all. And talk about yeah, some. I, talk, I can talk about AIDS and HIV until the next cows person, come home. <laughs> this next person is obviously very close to me. He was uh, essentially raising me. He is my uncle. Hey. <laughs> Uncle Steve. Uncle Steve is, is is a gay activist. He's a chef. He's a minister. He's a father. He's a grandfather, actually. Um, and Michael Steve has Michael Steve has been um, living with HIV and AIDS for as long as I can remember. I don't remember when he serial started, um, but um, he it's been a part of his ministry for a very long time. That he's been living with HIV, and um, he's very open about it, especially in in his religious circles. Um, and I think that he's he's important. He feels it's important to make it part of his uh, religious ministry um, that you know that God has helped him see. Um, year after year after year. Mm. My uncle's in his 60s. He's probably 60. If my mom is 61, my uncle Steve's probably 64-ish. Um, so please give it up for um, my, my uncle Steve. My uncle's uncle uh, Steve Caldwell. Hey. My name is Steve Caldwell. I got to a point in my life where I realized that, um, that I, I geared toward men more so than I did women go through the journey of of acceptance you know um and also i continue to have other people in my life because my daughter's mother she was my friend before she was ever my girlfriend so that was a, a confidant someone i could share my experience i feel comfortable sharing things i was going through i had went through i also had um about with drugs and alcohol too so those are coping mechanisms for me to deal to maneuver through my life, I, I gain acceptance as well. So in that aspect, I again, Atlanta allowed me to have my first real queer relationship with a, uh, a guy. And, um, and in the aspect of having that, that's when I brought my daughter into my life. My daughter was, I think, ninth, ninth grade or 10th grade, somewhere in there. 
Um, and me and um, my friend David was together. And, and that's what I found then that this is where I need to be. This is where I'm feeling love. This is why I can't connect and deal with a whole lot of things, you know, because at that time too, I was, I had been diagnosed with HIV as well. And I have been living with that now uh, 42 years, you know, but uh, in, the, in the midst of that, that all brought everything into clarity for that relationship. It was now I'm, I'm not on drugs. I'm not doing it because I'm pimping myself out for drugs or anything or anything of that nature. I'm more so trying to become an, um, a productive member of society. For me, I always, um, I I never, never hid. I, in the community, I was just me. Because uh, for one, at that age, I found out, came to myself, I um, I never hid anything. I, and then uh, my mother, uh, when I came, I came out to my mother, you know, and shared with her, you know, for one. And one, I came out, even had to come out because but one time she caught me in the house, you no, know, um, in the act. And so in that aspect, um, my mother just told me that she loved me. And she also told me, whatever you whatever you do, be the best at it, you know. And so I never never really hid it from other people. People would assume because I'm a kind of soft spoken type, but um too and I'm a caring individual. So um in that aspect a lot of people looked at me as being um or oh, you know, and I danced. I danced a lot. I was considered a professional dancer at the time. I had my little dance groups uh, and everything, and we did those things. We traveled, but um, the point I'm trying to make is that um, my mother was the first uh, on that part. My mother was the first. Uh, I came out to even um, with the HIV, her and uh, one of my siblings and then my daughter. I shared that with my, uh, my daughter because my wife passed. Um, I never got with anyone else. Um, and, and my mind always, honestly, um, at that time over her, I was like, I was with her. You hear me? Um, I don't know I'm going to be on here and say like some, some gays that, um, oh, I know uh, God delivered me and this, that, and the other. I'm comfortable in who I am. I have a personal relationship with him. And that's, what matters to me, and and it's not who I love, it's the fact that I can love, you know, and love um, covers anything else that would um, tear down, and being transparent for the individual, I had to grow into that, you know, um, not keeping secrets, but being, walking in my own truth is what I'm trying to say, um, and uh, even with my wife, I, she knew everything, I didn't hide anything, even though people knew about when I got married. Oh, girl, you know, he used to do this and he used to do that. But bottom line, I already had made her aware that I had HIV. I, you know, I gave her a choice because I work in that field as an educator as well here in Atlanta. So my thing was to give a person a choice in the matter, you know, uh, and I truly wasn't looking for going to jail by sleeping with someone and then they come, come become positive and then I have to do a jail sentence for that. But I learned to be able to be all right. I found out I was HIV positive on the latter part, um, 81 going into 82. I began to cry um, because I um, I was in a, around people that um, 
that I saw was dying. I began to see movies that were being made portraying the people as being these dead, sickly sores and everything. Um, And more than anything, because of um, me living a fast life, I look at the fact also at times my mother, you know, when I did go to my mother, my mother didn't want her to believe it. She said, oh, boy, um, what do you need now? You must want something, you know, um, because um, I was just that person. When I was in the tight, I made sure I got to my mother, you know, or someone that was very close. But dealing with it, that at that time, I was scared. I was fear in fear. But um, by the grace of God, he blessed me to be a part of a, a group called Our, Our Common Welfare. And in the midst of, of that, I began to be a part of that and I was elevated in that support group because um, they saw the potential in me that I, I didn't mind talking about me. I was open with whatever was dealing with me. I would go on panels there at Morehouse and talk about um, living with it, because living, talking about it, it didn't it took away the stigma for me, and it took away the fear of death, you know, um, and what I was seeing. But it also set me up to be able to do a better taking care of force, health wise, take care of myself, l- learn how to know what the regimen was. And at that time, they couldn't regulate Crixvan uh, and the um, the other. I can't um, I can't think of it right now. But anyway, it was one that was they it was geared toward white men, and um, and they, more of them it worked better with there because that's what they did to study with than they did a group of black people, and um, it was horrible because it changed with the colors of my nails. It uh, dealt with my skin a little bit, um, the side effects, but um, I made it through that and got into some studies. That's what helped me as well getting to volunteer myself to be a part of studies, to be able to help. I have so much love I want to give. Until you learn how to love yourself, you can't love no one else. I don't care if it's your children. I don't care if it's another adult, individual. But love starts with you. Change starts, you know. And it's like uh, the metamorphosis of a butterfly. You know, you're in the cocoon, but you have to go back. I had to go back in me and be able to pull out what I have to give today. We're that village. We have to be that village to the ones that don't know how and the ones that are coming in. It's so great to hear Uncle Steve, who, your Uncle Steve, who, um, hey, he's your uncle, he's my uncle too. Um, uh, in the podcast. <laughs> your uncle, uncle too. Is that John <laughs> Jacob Jim Girlheimer Schmidt? Is that what that song is? Yeah. 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 Uh, Honestly, can we, no one talks about how John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt is a full-on bop. Like, <laughs> if there was a chart topping of all the like the kid sing-along songs, yeah. obviously, I think "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" is going uh, like almost in number one. You know, "Mary Had a Little Lamb" is no, clearly going to be up there. Lamb. No one's even. Wasn't that more more well known than, 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 than that? No, they're all up yeah. there. But I'm saying. Justice for John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. What, what about Johnny Appleseed? Do you remember that? <laughs> Johnny Appleseed. No, that's that was Frere No, no, that's not Frere Jacques. Frere Jacques is Frere Jacques. Don't me. 
What's that? That's a French one as well. French. Yes. Is that a French term? What does it mean? Fair Jack. I think. And what is and what does alouette mean? Alouette. I don't know. Let's keep going. Um, anyway, um, but yeah, you know, my, my uncle Steve was probably the first person in my in my life that I knew who had been um, who had uh, who was infected with the virus, who was zero certed and um, zero converted and zero uh, converted. Zero converted. Zero converted. Zero converted. Zero converted. Zero converted. Oh, no, zero sorting is when you, zero sorting is when you, zero sorting is when you look at someone and go, well, if you say you don't have AIDS and I just believe you don't have, or you say you don't have HIV and I believe you don't have it. I believe, uh, if I'm if I'm correct, I remember they were saying, I remember when I, in New York City, there's like a lot of talk about like HIV and AIDS and you're like, zero sorting is not a means of prevention. And zero sorting is when someone just goes, well, I don't have HIV and you just go, okay. And then you just have sex. And you're just like, well, you said you don't, so it's just a really, oh, it's so a clinical t- zero conversion is just a clin- clinical term for testing positive, essentially. The the point at which you can go from usually happens in a few weeks, go from testing negative, even with HIV ex- after HIV exposure and HIV in your system, to now you testing positive, which means it's essentially it's all kind of kicked in. That's that's what it means. Mm-hmm. So, so my uncle was the first person I know who ever uh, had who has the HIV virus, and especially is open about it in my life, and um, and I think that it helped me with um, destigmatizing. I I, I don't sure. I don't want to act like I was too young to ever have stigma because I I'm sure at some point in my life, but just growing up being raised by someone who was open about it, who like cooked my food and. And hung out with me, and and you know, I remember like 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 everyone in the world, he would like get a cut, and and no one no one was like, ah! we were all like, oh yeah, because he has a cut, just like everyone else has a cut. Like this, this is this is clearly not the end of the world. Like this happens. Mm-hmm. So I think I think because I had someone like that in my life, I was I was I I don't think I ever really had the the fear of the, the that that like really um irrational mm-hmm. um or 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 really terrifying fear of people who have HIV. Well, I think that there's different types of stigma, right? Like so there's the interpersonal and then there's the institutional. And I think one of the the biggest examples of the institutional stigma with AIDS and HIV, one of the biggest examples that I'll think that I can like a very large example of institutional stigma with HIV is like simply the the act of giving blood, which we hear about so much about that's really important to give blood. Obviously humans need blood. Um, and we give blood from people who are, you know, have blood to give. It's used for people who are sick, essentially, and who need the blood. And in emergency situations, a lot of times when you don't have time, you don't have like months to lead up to it. This person is in a car accident or something. They need blood now. Um, and so there's all there's been a lot of initiatives with, um, you know, the blood bank to, you know, get get people involved. It happens at the high school left starting in high school. Um, and then through adulthood, lots of people want to do their duty to give blood and, you know, have been uh, people, people with p- gay folks, gay men, very particularly, and sort of, you know, by extension, trans women and people assigned male at birth 
uh, have been excluded uh, and banned from giving blood until very recently. It's there's been uh, some incremental, significant but incremental um, improvements with that. Um, but they test the blood anyway, and so like for thirty years. There, I believe there was a ban on if you were gay or had if you were a gay man or have ever had sex with another man in your life, whether protected or unprotected, we don't want your blood. And that was some discrimination. And I think a lot of people can internalize that as like, ooh, the the blood of anyone who's who's had sex with men or oh, who's gay sure. is like, you know, poisonous. And it kind of f- perpetuated that stigma, I think. First time I ever tried to donate blood was after Hurricane Katrina. There was a uh, a blood shortage, and there was like, "All right, everyone, go out there and donate donate blood. You all got it. You all need to be donating blood. We need it. We're in a shortage, and we need blood." So me and my friends were like, "Let's go donate blood." Now I was, um, came in and drank. We weren't all gay. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know that many gay people. I was in college at the time. I didn't know that many gay people. I showed up, and they asked you all these questions: Do you have sex for money? Um, you know, do you do this? Do you do, do you do any, um, you know, intravenous drugs? Uh, or, and, and then, and then, then they were like, um, do you have you ever, do you have sex with men? And I was like, yeah. yeah. And she nope. was like, out. And I was like, excuse me. And she was like, you can't give blood if you, if you're a man who's had sex with men. And I was like, ever. And now I was at the time, like, I was like 19 years old. I was like. I thought y'all niggas was on a shortage. I thought y'all needed this. This, this nope, good, and they don't this announce good, it. Good. They're like, they honey, don't announce it. Honey, you need this, honey. I, I got what you need. I got what you want. I got what you want. Got what I got you what you need. Um, and they suddenly didn't have time for me and my 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 um may or may not be tainted blood. They didn't have time for me or my may or may not be tainted blood that they had. That they, that they swore, but they told me on the on TV. They just told me they needed. Yeah, and girl, they, the they let you. They're like, to, come right. down here. We want you to pay to come all the way down then here. Like, Rearrange okay. your work schedule, change your life to come all the way down here, just so okay. we can tell you we don't want nothing to do with you. I said, I said, I said, here I come. I'm, America's in need. Nope, not from you. A friend in need deserves blood. We wasn't talking to you. And girl, when I got. <laughs> Clearly not me. So I was really blown. I was really yeah. blown away. So that's at how my, you experienced when they were like, "Yeah, gay ass yeah. That's that's how you were personally affected, and 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 one way that you experienced the stigma of AIDS and HIV, even though you obviously we we don't I don't I can't talk about your health status, but I'm assuming you've been tested for HIV, and they test the blood anyway. Do you know what I mean? Which is so like, yeah. come on, y'all. <laughs> Yeah, it was in 1985 that they implemented the ban. And then uh, I think in 2015, they sort of softened it and said, well, you could have had sex with a man in your life. But if you've done it in the past like year, then we don't want you. So they kind of inch closer. I feel like now I think it's a like, I don't know if it is officially at three months or if it is like or if that's like one of the old laws. But there are, There are lots of places still where you can't give plasma or blood. If you are a, if you're assigned male at birth and you've had sex with someone who's assigned male at birth in the past three well, months, which I'm like, I got to give three months of celibacy to give blood. This is crazy. Well, that's, that's because that's when that's like the window of time from um, an encounter to like sort of when a lot of people would go to get tested. That's when it would, that's the shortest window of time that people have seen from exposure to seroconversion. Um, and so that, that's 
understand why three months is certainly better than 12 months, uh, why people would come to a number if they felt like they had to come to a number, but I don't understand why you have to come to a number. Um, obviously not. I don't work with the FDA and, and, and the blood bank and the American Red Cross. However, um, you know, you're testing the blood anyway. So like, what difference does it make? But they have leveled, I want to update people. They have leveled the, the, I think in just this, a month ago in August, they announced new guidelines that basically level the playing field. And so there are, um, they, it's not as outwardly discriminatory towards assigned male at birth people and trans women. If you, they're asking you that history. Um, I think it's more focused on the testing and the, the knowledge of one's status rather than just your sexual history as a, as a way to exclude people. I don't have the updated information, but it is much better, but it's yeah. not a hundred percent. You know, the best way would be. Also, apparently red blood cells, apparently donated blood can only last for 42 days. Which is why they're that. constantly needing it for um, everybody. Yeah. You know, you know something um, really, uh, this is really uh, non sequitur. And then we'll move on to our, our final guest. But uh so now my Google information to find out. And I was trying to remember what year was that that I got, that I got turned away. So I had to Google what year Hurricane Katrina was. You know, when you Google people, there's always a picture of them. 2005. Okay. But you know, if, if you Google, um, if if you Google a picture, it uh, it shows you like a picture of. A, if you Google a word or a person, like if I Google peppermint, it'll it'll be a picture of you on the side, and there's like a picture of Hurricane Katrina, picture. which I don't know why I found that so interesting. It's, it's like she like as if she's like a person. So it's, it's give all this information. There's like a little like picture of the What's hurricane. What's it look like? Is it like side, a little smiling wind cloud? It's a swirl. It's like a. Oh, it's like a radar. Swirl. It looks like a big swirl of cloud. It's like radar. Yeah, it's just a big swirl of cloud. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And also, last thing I'll say too is I don't know who's working over at Google and who works over at Wikipedia, but whoever's job it is to make sure that the worst picture of me is available upon searching Girl, me, I wish nothing. Who? Well, uh, I don't pain even know how people got that picture of me on Wikipedia, which is what Google uses. I wish extreme sadness on you <laughs> because it is. I'm gonna go ahead and call it homophobic when like and, and I can't get the picture I want on there. They it just they will not allow me to have a life where the picture of me on Google or on Wikipedia is just nice. So, you know. Uh, uh, I hope that um may your clothes always come out of the dryer just a little too damp. <laughs> With that being said, we wanted to say um thank you to our uh last guest our last guest is a 37 year old cis gay black man uh who's been positive for 17 years and sober for four uh he has worked in hiv health and currently works for an lgbtq specialized lgbtq rehab um and yeah let's welcome robert evans my name is robert um I am 37 years old. I work in treatment. I've been HIV positive since 2005. I was born in Northridge. Recent revelations have shown that I grew up in Inglewood. I forgot about it. So I'm from the Valley and from Northridge. So um, regular Black parents, they got divorced when I was two. Uh, mom was a debutante. Dad sold drugs. <laughs> And oldest of four, I found out I was gay, maybe 10th or 11th grade, because his name, there was this man who looked like Shamar Moore. He was a senior. I was a sophomore. He was light skinned and had good hair. And I was in love with him. 
I was, I was, I was going to marry this man and he got into NYU and broke my heart. He has a wife and kids now. It's fine. We had sex in my bedroom all the time. Um, now I think about it with the topic, it was unprotected sex. There was no, there was no talk of HIV or anything. I had heard of AIDS. I knew that AIDS was a thing that happened in the nineties and the late eighties. Um, I knew of condoms, but I thought that that was for people who were sleeping around. It was just me and this guy. And also I was a teenager. So like, where am I going to buy them? Where am I going to hide them when it's done? What happened if my mother finds out like the rush of wanting what I wanted mattered more than the health scare. Cause I was a teenager. I was invincible. I could do whatever. I got into Cal state Northridge and it was just, there was so much more. There were so many more men and boys and choices and parties. And I wouldn't even say I was promiscuous. I just had more access. I started to hear more about other things that you could do. You could top, you could bottom, you could be first. What a wild thing that was. Um, and nobody was talking about condoms. It was 2003, 2004. And no, like, I can't tell you one time where I had sex maybe one or two times where someone was like, here is a condom or here, let me put one on. It was a thing that I felt like my age group of gays, we knew of AIDS as this off distant thing in the past. It was this, it was this thing that happened. The only other gay person I knew until I went to college was my uncle junior. Um, and he was an older gay man. He had a sew-in bob, he wore furs, he drove and he drove a classic vintage Rolls Royce and we all called him Uncle Junior. I still don't know what his actual first name was. It wasn't until like my thirties that I actually met other gay men, gay black men over the age of 40. HIV scared the black community so much that it made gay being worse. Cause if you were gay, you were gonna get AIDS and die, period. Like gay equals death. So I can see how if there was someone who was gay, who didn't want their family to think that, oh shit, they're thinking that I'm going to die, wouldn't say shit about it. Wouldn't say anything about it. Um, my um, drinking had got really bad. I had dropped out of Cal State Northridge. I was still living in the Valley. Started dating this guy from Chicago and he would get drunk and he would tell me about these studies that he was doing for HIV. Just like, oh, I'm doing these studies. I'm like, okay, babe, sure, whatever. Um, still thinking of HIV and AIDS as this thing from the past. At the time, like, I was a serious monogamous boyfriend person. I slept with my man and my man only. And then when I got done with that man, I'd find a new man. So anyway, we broke up after a year or two. And it was like a week or so before Halloween, 2004. I had been feeling sick. I had been having night sweats, yada, yada, yada. I went in to get an STD test because maybe it's an STD because I had never had an STD. And I went into, I don't know if we, we should say that. I, I went to this hospital conglomerate that has lots of hospitals in Southern California and did a bunch of blood tests. Halloween went out being gay, underwear, and of course, I had a new boyfriend because that's what I did. And the phone rang November 1st. 
hey, it's Dr. So-and-so's office. Can I have your name and your date of birth? Yeah, sure. Okay, so your STDs test came back negative. You were negative for chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, yada, yada. But you're HIV positive, so you should come in and make an appointment. Okay, click. I was hungover one because it was the night after Halloween. I was laying next to my boyfriend at the time who I just came in a couple of hours ago. And they told me this over the phone, which at the time seemed normal, but like to like look back at it, so irresponsible. I could have ran out into oncoming traffic. And I had a family barbecue that afternoon. I didn't have time to process, so I didn't. I didn't. I shut down. I kissed the boyfriend. I hopped in my car. I went home. I showered. I went to the family function and literally pretended like I never got that phone call for about three weeks. Mm -hmm. And by Thanksgiving, I had full-blown AIDS, had 82 T cells and viral meningitis in my spine. I couldn't turn my neck. Mm -hmm. I was in so much pain. And mind you, I'm 19. So there's no... There was no logical reason why this young 19-year-old kid should be in so much pain. And um, I went into the doctor and they ran a bunch of tests. And I, t well, because I went to the same hospital, they knew what my previous test results were. But because I was 19, they couldn't tell my parents, so I told them not to. Um, they did a spinal tap, viral meningitis, isolated me in a room because my, you know, because I was sick. and. I was so sick that when I got my first HIV regimen of meds, it was four medications. One of them had to be refrigerated, and two of them were twice a day. Um, they sent me home with my mom because I lived by myself, and I was, like, sick. And my mom went through my paperwork. It was very much so my intention to never tell anyone. I was just going to get healthy and live my life and no one's going to fucking know. And so she went through my paperwork and I remember hearing her on the phone because my mom talks loud, but she talks about you as if you can't hear her. Um, and I remember her like crying to my aunt, like, I knew this was going to happen. This is what happens to them. Yada, yada, yada. My parents found out I was gay in May. I had HIV by November. So in May, my dad kicked me out. My mom told me my soul was in peril. She's a little dramatic. Um, and I had not spoken to my family that entire summer. It was the boyfriend who was telling me about the trials and tests that he was doing. To this day, and we've had talks, well, not talks, we had a talk. Recently, he still thought that he was negative. He claims that they were telling him that the strain that he has was not contagious and yada, yada, yada. I've done some, I have done some work on myself to not hold on to that because that doesn't serve me to be like, you gave this to me because at the end of the day, I was grown and I made a choice to not protect myself, but I got it from him. I got it from him. When I found out that once I got healthy and I found out that it was him, I went to his job. He worked at a um, smoothie shop and I walked in and I ordered a smoothie from him. And he was like, hey, how are you? I'm like, I'm fine. You gave me HIV and I walked out. I did not handle that well. <laughs> but um, yeah, 
my family found out, my mother found out, my mother is the type to tell the entire family. And it was like in an instance, I had my family back. Prayer, warriors, everywhere. I'm still struggling with how I feel about that. Because when I was gay, you didn't want anything to do with me. But when you thought I was dying, okay, well, now let's go back to loving him. You don't know what you've got until it's gone. Or the fear of losing something changes people. I just wish that it didn't have to be that way. Mm. Like there's still a small part of me that's like, had my family not disowned me, would I have ran into the arms of this man? I'll never know that answer. Um, I'm perfectly fine and proud being an HIV positive black man today. But like I was fucking 19. My early 20s were trash. Mm. I did a lot of damage to myself behind that unresolved trauma of like being HIV positive at 19. Cause this was before prep and this was before all of the things in my head told me. And this is something that I've learned in like therapy was that at 19 was the first time I gave up on myself. No one's going to love me. I'm not going to find a lifelong partner. I'm always going to be sick. Like there is a permanent chink in my armor is the story that I told myself. I know that that's not true today. Like, I'm very, very much so aware that, like, I'm not perfect, but I'm damn good. I wonder sometimes what my life could have been like had that chain of events not happened. There is no way that I'd have the strength or the self-love that I have. Like, I mm -hmm. take care of my body today. Not only just because I'm a man of a certain age and, like, you know, shit is shifting and <laughs> changing, but, like, I know that I have this thing that I need to take care of. And had I not, I'd probably still have that like mindset of I'm invincible and I can, and I don't need to worry about blah, 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 blah. Like, no, when it's cold outside, I need to put on a jacket. So when I first got home and got on meds and stuff, like they signed me up with a bunch of like self-help groups and things like that. And I went to a lot of support groups for gay men with HIV. And looking back, I didn't take them seriously at 19 but i'm grateful that they were there because my head told me that it that it was just me i was one of the younger people in those groups um but i but i am grateful that it started me going to therapy i've been going to therapy on and off since i was 19 because my drinking and my drugging got really really bad around 19 20 because I didn't see it then, but like, I didn't want to think about these pills that I have to take every day. I'm 19 years old. Why am I having the little things with the days and all of that? And like, so I drank. I had to be free. I had to be wild. I had to be crazy because I had this thing that might kill me. So I think I amped it up. I did the most. Mm. I did the most. Like nothing was going to be taken from me. I went the opposite end. Like not the poor me, but no, fuck this. Mm. I'm I'm about to be out here in these streets, at the bar, at the club, club, another club, brunch. Like, that is how I handled it. Because that's how I handle things sometimes. Like, I don't sit in self-pity for too long, but I'll go the other destructive route. And I definitely say my late teens, early 20s were fueled by that. And therapy helped. Um, I want to say that what changed it for me really was the medication changing, I went years without taking meds mm -hmm. because I just refused to take all these meds every day. I was young, and I think maybe that's why I wasn't so 
affected. I didn't become undetectable until like my mid to late 20s. But I never got really sick from not taking my meds. Luckily. Mm-hmm. Luckily. I like I was in a relationship with a man for nine years that I didn't tell I had HIV until we had been together for six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, never took my meds. Mm. Never took my never took my meds, was perfectly fine. He was not positive when we met. Like I have had to deal with the fact that like my that my cowardice or my fear around being upfront and honest gave someone HIV. And we were together for nine years. Like even after he found out, we still stayed together for over four or five years. There was a lot of unresolved trauma and drama around the decision that I made and then the decision that we made to still kind of push through that. But I want to say that what shifted me feeling like less of a broken person was just taking one pill. I could do one pill and not feel like I was a bad guy. There's days where I forget I'm HIV positive. When when I found out at 19, it was the first thing I thought when I woke up. Now I see these little billboards for PrEP and PEP and all of the things. And I was like, oh, I've had that for a minute. Like, y'all, like Sometimes I find myself not having a lot of compassion for people who are newly diagnosed. When I found out about PrEP, and Descovia was furious mm. because the first prep was Truvada and Truvada was one, was like part of my um, regiment when I first found out. And my thoughts were, if y'all had this the whole time, what happened to me? Because mm. I think I had been positive like four or five years when they first like started to like talk about prep. And I was fucking furious. I was mad. I was jealous. I was mad at Big Pharma because they knew and they just wanted to make money. And I went into a YouTube deep dive. <laughs> I, was, I was just, I was so fucking mad that why not me? And then at some point I just stopped caring because like it wasn't going to change. And I was down to one pill and like, okay, like maybe this keeps people from having to go through what I went through. Um. And now it's just so popular. No one is worried about HIV anymore. When I hear people who are newly diagnosed, I wonder, I know how HIV is transmitted. I just wonder how with all of the access there is now to medication and free meds and PrEP, how it happens, I don't. I try and stray away from blaming. I couldn't imagine those feelings that must come up becoming newly diagnosed with all that's out there now. Mm. There wasn't as much when I was diagnosed 17, 18 years ago. But like there's a billboard within a mile of here talking about prep and pep. And it's on commercials and it's, you know, like it must be really tough being diagnosed now. I'm sober. And I go to a lot of gay AACMA um, meetings, and there's more older white and Latin men, which I'm grateful for because they've been sober for a long time. And I have that experience to like build on. But there's like a couple, there's, I've been sober, it'll be four years tomorrow. I can name four, I know, I can name four older gay black men 
in the rooms of recovery in Los Angeles. And I go to a lot of fucking meetings. So like, I'm not saying that those are the only ones, but like, if there were more, I would have seen them. And that math is off. Mm -hmm. That math is off. Like, I feel like, and I haven't done the like research to know, but I feel like what white gay men lost during the AIDS epidemic is a fraction of just entire groups of people, of black and brown people, to where no one survived to talk about their friends that they lost because everybody died. Everybody died. I couldn't fathom the friends that I have now dropping like flies. Could not fucking fathom. But um, it sucks because not only did we lose the education of HIV and AIDS, but like just coming up, dating men and going to the club and girl, watch out for him and don't go to that bar. And like, no, we have to figure that shit out on our own. Yeah. <laughs> like we had to figure that shit out on our own. Whereas now these baby gays, you know, they have something or they at least have some access to education and the culture. And I didn't know much about ballroom until it became popular on television. I've never been to New York and like anyone who was coming up gay in that time who was of color probably died, probably died to where I had to learn about it on fucking television with everybody else. I wish that wasn't the case. I think not that I'm putting this responsibility on myself, but like if I go into a room and I see a younger queer gay, like, we here. We don't have to like Kiki. Like I'm not going to be friends with everybody black. Like people that know me know that that's true. But um, like to be seen matters. To be seen matters so that we can pass along some of this shit. It's not going to change the world, unfortunately. But I feel like there are lots of things that maybe I didn't have to experience or not even experience, but experience alone. There was a lot of loneliness. I go to a lot of meetings and the younger queer Black people who are coming into the rooms, they're like, we see you. Like, why don't you sign up for more things? Why don't you get on the board of this and the board of them? I'm like, bitch, I'm just trying to say sober today, girl. Like, But um, there's not a lot because there's like us and then there's 40s and 50s. And there's a gap, and that gap is the AIDS like is the AIDS thing. Like, that's the gap. And so if I'm 21, 22, I'm probably going to connect with someone more in their 30s than someone who's in their 50s. This year, really. This year, as much as I want to like rag on myself about what I haven't done and blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm not seeing myself, but other people are. And that's kind of cool. That has been uncomfortable. <laughs> it's been uncomfortable because I just want to like go to work and pay my bills and go see Beyonce and take my meds and check in with my mom. And, but it's a gift to still be here because there's a lot I couldn't fathom. Like, I would love to look into it, but I think it would be too much. I don't want to know the numbers of yeah. how much was lost because I would even question how accurate they are. Because they still treat Black people crazy. So think about what it was like 30, 40 years ago. That math wouldn't math for me. I still live my life, but 
I think about more than just myself, which is great, which is challenging. But <laughs> it is, um, I think about more than just myself and like, what am I going to pass on? I might have kids. I don't know why. I might buy some kids one day, but um, kids are expensive. <laughs> Hell, surrogacy and all that shit is not cheap. I'll have mm -hmm. to buy me some kids mm -hmm. and they better act right. Um, but I think about what I'm going to leave on this world. Like, what am I going to leave? Am I just going to be another gay who was out here at the bar till he was 50, 60, and then dip? No, no, I, I don't, I am not exactly sure what it will be, but I want it to be something. I want it to be something to where people will speak of me, not in, oh, whatever happened to so-and-so, but like, oh yeah, he, he, you know, did this. He stood for that. He spoke to, he spoke of. It's not about a accolade or an award or, but like, just to leave behind something to where someone else can carry something of value. Not just, oh, he, you know what? He, he was great at throwing that ass in a circle. Like, <laughs> but also, but also gave a fuck about standing up for trans people. Gave a fuck about making sure that we're seen in any space. Not just the BIPOC spaces, which I'm always grateful for. No, if I'm the only Black person there, then I'm just going to be the only Black person there until I'm not. Because if I don't show up, then no one ever sees one of themselves. I work at a LGBT-focused rehab, which is one of three in the country, which is still wild to say. Um, our entire staff is queer. Our entire curriculum is built around helping queer people. Um, and I always tell our um, clients that like getting sober is hard enough without having to worry about your pronouns or your HIV status or being able to talk about this thing and that thing that are very specific to the things that we go through. And the company that I um, work for is owned by this proud Puerto Rican man. And I don't feel like I work at one of those white places. We are very <laughs> like, yeah. and sometimes that's a problem. It's that like, okay, there's too many colored people. We have a good time and it's always, and it always warms my heart when someone is coming into treatment and sees something that they weren't expecting. Mm. They hear me on the phone. I'm from Northridge. My voice is a little whatever, but they see me like, oh shit, you black. I said, 37 years, girl. I've, just, I've been black a long time. Um, it's nice to be able to share my experience. Mm. I've had a couple of clients find out they were HIV positive in treatment and freaking out about it. And it's been so nice to just be like, okay, freak out. You're gonna have your feelings. The game has changed. You're gonna be okay. No one's gonna love me. That's not true. I got plenty of hoes. You'll be just fine. Plenty. You'll be just fine. It has been nice to I've had several clients tell me that they had never spoken to another HIV positive person mm. because the part of my job is that I want to say 60% of our clients come from outside of the state of California, come from outside of Los Angeles. I couldn't fathom being a trans man from Wisconsin with HIV. Mm. Who the fuck is he talking to about what's going on with him? Like he has no one. So 
um, being seen and being open. I used to not tell people I, I, I was HIV positive. It just kind of used to be this like, I'm gay. I'm an addict in recovery. I'm an alcoholic. Like those things I was fine with, but like being HIV positive. Yeah. And so you don't want to have sex. Okay. Well, that's your loss. Mm. You know, um, I never thought about it, but like, I guess I do. I have had lots of experiences where people have told me that they had never talked to someone who was HIV positive before. And that blows my mind because I live with me every day and my circle is very small and it's filled with positive and negative people and prepsters and all of that shit. But I'm very fortunate. I think we're very fortunate to live in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. to be from Los Angeles where there's stigma, but it's not the stigma of the Midwest. It's not the stigma of the South. I couldn't fathom how uncomfortable it must be to get that call or that email or the doctor telling you like, hey, you're HIV positive and then not having kind of whole centers, the LGBT center, the AP, LA's, the, um, what's the other one, AHF, like we have all this stuff and it's on the same block for the most part, <laughs> you know, like to have these places to go where everyone is kind of on the same page. Um, I think we're very fortunate to live here in Los Angeles. It's a great city. There's lots of traffic. The rent is too high, but I think when I went to treatment the first time and it was made aware to me how irresponsible I had been with my sexual conduct and the damage that I was causing other people. Mm. And the reason why I was being so reckless was because I had so much shame around being HIV positive. And it took a lesbian white lady who had lived through the AIDS epidemic and buried hundreds of people to tell me that there was nothing wrong with me. And I didn't like this lady (laughs) and she didn't like me, you know, but no one had ever told me that I was okay. Or maybe someone had, but it clicked in my head that like, until you become okay with this, you, you are a danger. You're hurting people. You're doing to people what that man did to you. You need to do some work on this shit. I think it was, I think it was there in that house that when it was made aware to me, the wreckage that I was causing was fueled by the shame that I had blocked down from when I was 19 years old. All that I needed or all that could have started this ball was like, yes, you have this thing. You are not this thing. If you're HIV positive, you're HIV negative, there's nothing different about you. It's like having freckles or green eyes or a white mama. Like, it's just, it just is what it is. Um, Find a community and a community doesn't need to be a large group of people. Find you two or three good Judys that you can be honest and transparent about and have some grace with yourself. There's going to be days where you feel fine. And then there's going to be moments or days where you just feel like the, the worst thing, pick up the phone and say, I don't like myself today to someone that you know really, really rocks with you and get tested. All of these stories about, oh, I don't want to be one of those girls. I don't, okay, okay. 
you could not do that or you could put yourself at risk. If if it is that you want to go out and take loads for the weekend, get on prep. There are ways that you can do it. Also, look at why you want to take loads for the weekend. But um, protect yourself. There's too much science. There's too much information. The younger kids um, have access to all of it. There's TikTok threads. There's Reddit. There's this. There's that. Like, ask questions. Ask questions and take action. There's no point in you asking, oh, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And then you don't do shit about it. Find your local doctor if it is that you live in a state or a city where you don't have access to that. Get online. You can find doctors online for anything. Find someone who is going to help you to protect yourself. You, because, it, because it doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to live in shame around having HIV. You don't have to live in fear of getting it. You get to live your life, but also take a look at your sexual behaviors and what's really behind it. Like, do what makes you happy. And if you don't know what makes you happy, take a breath. Because I found that I did a lot of things trying to put on this front so that people would like me. I don't know where any of those fucking people are today. <laughs> no idea. All these people I was trying to impress with all of my sexual exploits. And, oh, yes, I did him and he did me. And him. I don't know where none of those people are today. It was that search, and I believe in having to try things out. Try it out. But if you don't like it, be honest with yourself. If you don't like being tied up and spat on, that's okay. You know? Um, seek information. Take action. Peppermint. Ah. We did another one. We did another one. Did another you know, I'm so one. grateful that we're doing this podcast. Yeah, wait, hold up. That was Robert Evans. Y'all can find Rob at Rob B Sway eighty six. Uh, please follow, give a give a look and follow, and let let Rob know how much you enjoyed listening to this episode and to to Rob's story in particular. Yeah. <laughs> and my uncle is not on. Well, my uncle's on Facebook. I, I don't know. I don't know. That find feels kind of intimate. Facebook. <laughs> right uncle steve does not have a social media and i don't think glenn hill has social media either so give all your love give all of your love to robert to, evans, uh, robert evans and then R. and R. then tell robert you want to confuse robert <laughs> tell robert how much you love uncle steve <laughs> <laughs> exactly robert is like, uncle steve. um well, Pep, thank you for uh, for 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 you know chatting with me again about yeah. Uh, well, another, thank you for chatting with me. Um, you know, I'm here every week, <laughs> so I'm, I'm here to chat. Uh, and I, I'm so sorry that I had so much you know, to say it is about um, it. For about, I'm not sorry that I had a lot to say. I'm sorry that it. Uh, I, ho I hope it was useful. Um, and I do want to remind people again to go watch. You know. Uh, Endgame, AIDS in Black America, because it really does, it's a nice snapshot um, for the uh, at the intersection of events between uh, being out and queer uh, as a Black queer person in the United States, AIDS and HIV in the United States, and also the crack epidemic uh, in the United States, the war on drugs in the United States was all happening. It's all the same conversion. And then, uh, and then also the, uh, the, the re the implementation of the plan to shuttle funnel 
ship Black folks into the prison industrial complex was a big part of uh, there's the connection between that crack, cocaine in, in the communities, AIDS and HIV, and being queer and and out slash closeted. Um, these were, this was a perfect storm of uh, that contributed to to the numbers, I believe, of not only um, HIV uh, infections in the United States in black communities, but also in terms of uh, the prison uh, population and why it's so part of why it's so disproportionately black. Um, although we represent a smaller fraction of the of the population and so so please watch endgame it's an amazing thing um and yeah well let's 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 wrap it out um, special thanks to our production team uh executive producer tracy marquez uh senior producer charlene westbrook producer Corey nixon and post producer amelia Ritaler. music by lafemme bear thank you so much everybody for listening 